scary movie. Fear is defined as a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? For fun? That's my other brother, Daryl. so not uh, able to be analyzed in a traditional manner, at least to, to like the conventions of, you know, mainstream storytelling. And I love him for that reason, except that I just find it funny that my favorite film of his is his most mainstream in terms of like narrative structure. You mean Eraserhead is, has a narrative structure? It, <laughs> I think, I think Eraserhead does have a, I don't know, like a, not in terms of traditional storytelling, but it definitely has a lot of very key themes that it explores, and I'll get into that uh, when we go on. Oh, Things okay. like mania. <laughs> we are on the air. Look at that. I liked Blue Velvet. That one messed me up. 
Oh, I love Blue Velvet too. Blue Velvet is a, fa a favorite of mine too. But then all of Lynch's uh, films, even Mulholland Drive, that is. Uh, yeah, I love. I, love I recently Mulholland. watched that one. I liked it. I love Mulholland Drive, and I love uh, the first Lynch film I ever saw was Lost Highway, which I loved. That one was different. Yeah, no one ever talks about that one, but it's so good. I love it. I I like it better than Lost than uh, Mulholland Drive personally. I, I think Mulholland Drive is good, but I to me Lost Highway is just I think it has a bigger I think it's got more impact and I like the soundtrack a whole lot. Uh it, they're very similar kinds of films except uh Mulholland Drive I've noticed like the some of the initial magic of it is kinda lost once you know the backstory of it, which is that it was supposed to be the pilot of a TV series and that's why the a lot of the plot there's a lot of plot points that get set up that don't get resolved and so then he instead of making it a pilot he said okay i'm gonna make it a film and so then they kind of came up with a completely different ending and that kind of stuff as opposed to lost highway which is always meant to be a film and it clearly shows you know so i think that's a big difference i saw the original twin peaks but that's about the only lynch thing i can remember that i've seen besides Eraserhead. you should oh, you watch blue velvet yeah, you got to yeah, see the rest of it. Definitely have to watch uh, Blue Velvet. Well, in any case, um, welcome to Inside Movies Galore, episode number 22. Um, uh, and um, welcome back. Uh, this week uh, we are talking about Eraserhead, which is directed by David Lynch from 1966. And it is... 1977. 1977. There we go. I knew it was old, but that seems too old. It's <laughs> yeah, way too old. Oh, but, uh, me. It's dying. In any case, 1977, and uh, we have a story about a man who evidently uh, lives in an in-between world where um, he evidently lives the factory life, has a girlfriend, and, uh, well, why, why don't we start with Sam? Uh, Sam, um... When did you first uh, see um, see uh, Eraserhead? What interested you in the film? Um, well, my uh, I think I said it last week. But I think it was before we were live. But my brother like tried to rent it on Netflix, and it said like out of stock. But we'll ship it when it comes in. And then like a year later, it like just randomly came. Okay. So I was like, oh, I'll just check out this movie, and then. Yeah, I just had never seen anything like that. It's still like I feel like you could like try to make the weirdest thing you possibly could and it would still just like not be anywhere near as weird as that movie. <laughs> okay. Um was was there any particular thing that you liked the most about it? Uh I I kind of feel like I think my favorite thing is like the the sound is definitely cuz that's like something that really interests me is like like sound design and stuff, and I think it's definitely my favorite movie, like sound wise, and especially there's you know it's just kind of those weird noises the entire time, and then there's that one musical number that just comes out of nowhere, and I just like love the juxtaposition of that. Okay. So, um, Dustin, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your first experience with uh, Eraserhead and? Um, about your experience with it recently. Well, uh, I first saw it a few years ago when I started really doing this hobby. 
Um, and at the time, I was just like, huh, that was weird. Because I, I didn't really, like, pay attention to it. Um, and then, because of its reputation, I ended up watching it a few more times. Like, there were two or three people that I showed it to. And um, each time, like, I got some pretty good reactions out of them. Um, and, like, I couldn't quite remember what happened. I just remembered, and it's like, oh, this movie is really messed up and weird. And then I saw it again today for the first time in a couple years. And, like, really, like, sitting and focusing on it, um, it was actually much more intense, especially now that I'm a lot more familiar with, uh, like, what movies are kind of trying to do to me. Uh, I got the sensation that it was really, it was a really a sensory experience. Um, like, the plot, um, I don't think there really was a plot. Like, I noticed there was a lot of ambient sound that seemed to be aimed at either disorienting me or making me uncomfortable. Like, the whole thing was just, like, it's not like you're watching a story, it's you're just watching things that are meant to, like, make you feel things. Uh, like, there were all kinds of sounds that were, like, unappetizing or discomforting. Like, there was close-ups of, like, oozing fluids. Um, there were, like, weird, like, jumping moments. Uh, and there were things that just, things happened that had just no explanation whatsoever. Um, but from the way it was presented, like, you can tell it's not just, you know, a lot of movies try to do this where it's like, hey, look at this, feel, feel uncomfortable. Um, but this movie actually pulled it off successfully. I have heard it described as an attempt to film a nightmare. Like, a lot of it has kind of dream logic to it. And I think that's more or less what they successfully did. Um, like... Okay. Was, it was a lot better seeing it this time around. Um, and, like, especially near the end where I was just, like, uncomfortable. Like, oh, what's happening? It's like, I've seen this before. I, I know. <laughs> Celeste, what was your perspective of the film when, when you first saw it? And uh, did you watch it recently? Uh I actually had not ever watched it until today. It was one of those I always wanted to watch it. I never got around to it. It was sort of on my list forever. So I was really excited that we were going to do it because it gave me the excuse, I guess, to finally watch it. <laughs> and your thoughts? Uh, I I liked it. Um, it was different. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I really liked the baby a lot. <laughs> I feel yeah. like baby. despite the baby being sort of uh, unusual for an infant. Clearly um, inhuman. It captured a lot of the feeling of a new of new parents, and I actually appreciated that. Well, yeah. I think like uh, you have the same it cries all the time, you feel frustrated, you feel tired. Like they didn't treat it any differently, I guess, than you would treat a sort of a normal looking child. So it sort of captured that well, feel. The mother did. The mother did. She, well, she, yeah, she, she to, did. She had to leave. <laughs> right, and that seemed very realistic to me. I remember feeling that with my kids, so I was just like, "Wow, it's actually pretty good." Um, and uh, did you have uh, a favorite uh, favorite moment besides that, or uh, did you have anything else that you could notice about the film that you wanted to talk about? Um, I did like the way things make you uncomfortable, like the baby crying was not overwhelming and it wasn't loud. It was just always present in a kind of 
builds up on you. A lot of the sensory overload sort of starts out subtly, but it sort of builds your discomfort level. Okay. Exactly. Like there was there was always something on in the background. Okay. Dane, um, why don't you uh, tell me when you first were um, subjected to this film and uh, uh, what was your recent experience with it? Well, um, I first saw Eraserhead in college. It had always been on my list to see. I'd first seen a David Lynch film back in high school. It was Lost Highway, um, which I absolutely adored. Um, and uh, I saw Eraserhead, and I also adored it. Um, I've since loved every David Lynch thing I've seen for various reasons. I, I don't know if we were live when I mentioned this, but it's kind of funny. I love Eraserhead and I love Lynch for being so uh, atypical, shall we say, and very uh, non-linear, non-traditional in his storytelling. Um, and yet my favorite film of his is The Elephant Man, which is one of his most mainstream films, but that's another discussion. Um, Eraserhead. I absolutely love Eraserhead. Um, the reason why I love it, besides just being a visual masterpiece, beyond being a sound design masterpiece, besides being so unbelievably different from anything else that had been made before and since, you know, uh, besides all of that, what I love the most about it is that it captures true horror, but it's a, of a different kind. It's the horror of life of painfully, horribly ordinary life. Life that's painfully uh, repressive and so ordinary that a person is trying to break out of it in whatever way that they can. Um, so in other words, you have this ordinary person who's kind of a misfit with weird hair, not unlike David Lynch himself. It's obviously very autobiographical in this industrial town like the story on paper is so ordinary. It's a guy in an industrial town gets his girlfriend pregnant, his family, the family pressures him into marrying her, and then it's the, you know, they have a baby, and it's just the horrors of new parenting and all that stuff, uh, being young parents to a, a baby, and they're not ready for it. That's all so ordinary, so it's not so much what happens, but how it happens. And that's what I love so much about it is that it just what it tells people is that life can be horrifying, you know, uh, and I just think that's a beautiful statement. It's told beautifully um, and it uh, it appeals to your subconscious, which I think good films, not every kind of film, but I think that the best films tend to work on your subconscious. And uh, this film does it. it. This David Lynch films in general, I think, appeal the strongest to your subconscious. And look no further than Eraserhead for the perfect subconscious experience. That was one of my notes too. Wow. I myself first saw this on um, eight millimeter. Um, I believe. And um, I had a friend who uh, used to have like anything from like uh, uh, VHS, cassette tape, um, you name it. He had it of the uh, of all the old school, you know, um, 
ways of viewing films, and uh, I saw it on uh, on one of the, I believe it was a 35 millimeter, and uh, he, uh, uh, not the eight millimeter, but um, he had, uh, when it was real to real, and seeing it uh, first time th uh, th uh, then, and then um, seeing it clear um, on the Criterion um, co uh, collection version of the eraser head. To me, it was the story of a man who was caught up in this surreal um, industry uh, where he's, you know, creating paper, uh, paper in a paper mill, okay? And uh, he evidently has this baby that is unknown to him by the parents, and he is not normal so uh, so it's the process of dealing with first-time parenthood um and the prospect of having a a baby that is you know mal malformed abnormal and once she leaves him he starts having nightmares about you know what what to do where to go uh, which is exactly what uh, why this lady in the radiator seems to um resonate with uh, with him all of a sudden he starts hearing the sounds of of the radiator and you almost see like uh, the auditorium before the lady gets there anyways uh when, when he's just by himself you you actually see just a moment of that empty auditorium uh so so uh, to me it's like he imagines this lady singing to him try, uh, uh, trying to help him deal with the whole process well, <laughs> go ahead well one of the uh linking the central linking themes of david lynch's work i've noticed is the imagined uh idyllic existence which is often very glitzy and glamorous or perfect in some way that kind of idyllic imagined world contrasted with the nightmarish reality. And you always see that throughout this film, the elephant man has some glimpses of that. Uh, Lost highway is about that. Mulholland drive is really about that. You, know, you just, you see, and blue velvet has a lot of elements of that too. Um, but that's a very, very strong theme in all of his works that I've seen. And, um, so that that theme is very consistent throughout. Um, Sam, did you have anything else to add about the film that you might want to get off your chest? Yeah, uh, one thing I was was thinking of was I actually um, like my uh, in college I did a whole like report on on the sound of the movie and I so I like watched a ton. Of, I have the Criterion Collection edition that has a bunch of interviews with mm -hmm. David Lynch and like one thing that he said that I, I thought was really interesting was that you know he grew up I can't think if it's Washington or Montana or like one of the Northwest states, mm -hmm. which is like kind of like you know Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks are sort of set in that sort of setting, okay. and he was saying like 
you know, that, that was where he lived. And then he moved shortly before he made a racer head, he moved to Philadelphia and he was saying like, when he got there, it was, it was much more, you know, industrialized and, and he just felt like it was just so loud and he didn't like it there. So he was saying like that racer head was like a little bit kind of just about that, which I thought was really interesting. Cause it was like, I feel like, you know, a lot of times we talk about when, when like a director will try to make things not really literal, like literally the way they are, but you know, like symbolic or like, mm-hmm. like they'll use like expressionism or whatever. But I feel like we don't really think of that in terms of sound as much as like visuals. So it, it was just really interesting that like, I mean, the visuals are like weird too, but like there's that scene where he walks into like uh, Mary's uh, parents' place and there's that like just giant pipe right through the middle of their correct and like uh house important. and then there's just like all the sounds too mm-hmm. it's like he's like it's kind of really interesting so you do you think that um this film resonates some of uh german expressionism maybe i think it definitely does okay like i mean i'm not sure if like he literally was watching that stuff or or if it was just kind of unintentionally happened but I, I just really feel like it definitely feels similar to those films in a lot of ways. Okay. The the Elephant Man really takes after German Expressionism and James Whale's yeah. Frankenstein in terms of the visual style. Um, one thing I did uh, want to say with um, this film that I found interesting, you guys may or may not have come across this interview that he did. Um, so George Lucas had seen Eraserhead and loved it obviously who wouldn't um and uh he had offered him he uh lynch the chance to possibly direct return of the jedi and there's an amazing youtube video about how david lynch just he chronicles what happened when he met george and uh, the process of it all. It's really, really funny, but it also, the, just the way he describes his meeting, it sounds like something out of Eraserhead. It's, he, the language he uses is very descriptive, and the up-and-down range of emotions that he goes through is not unlike what the protagonist in this film experiences. And I bring it all up uh, as a way of saying that I do really feel that that is autobiographical, and I feel like that David Lynch's style is very uh, strongly emotional, very subconscious, and I feel like it's sort of his way of showing us, the viewers, kind of how he processes the world through this very surrealistic, artistic, um, highly emotional lens that... um, I think has a very strong, uh, deep resonance to those who are willing to, to look and to listen. Hmm. So much more depth to this movie than I realized. Oh like, yeah. It's, it seems like there was kind of a twinge of that, um, of the new parent kind of story thing. Um, but I took, I took a lot of the imagery kind of at face value. Um, and so I, I think I had a completely different experience <laughs> than everybody else. Um, it's like, you know, the baby is clearly a creature. Like, what is this? Like, <laughs> they all babies are creatures. You wonder that you, you take it home and you're like, suddenly it's like handing you a new person you've never met before. You know nothing about and you're supposed to take care of it. It's a creature. 
It doesn't look like Admiral Akbar and have its organs in a bag. You did not see my kid. My kid was really ugly. <laughs> he he had Admiral Akbar's face and his organs were like held held in by like well, tape. No, but it's an extreme version, but the the sentiment is the same. Okay. Well, and I I think it's also um I remember when I okay, for trivia here. The baby they used a uh, a cow fetus, I believe, um, and then they put um, I think some rods in it to make it move a little bit. Um, I forget exactly, but I think that's true. But um, so anyway, they that's how they made the baby. But when I saw that baby for the first time, I was really disturbed on a kind of deep level, but I also thought it was really really ingenious, and I loved it. I love that it affected me in that way. I, I think the man that uh, played Henry was very, um, yeah. very expressionful. With, with, uh, he didn't really have to say a lot to have you know exactly what, uh, what you you think was going on in your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and that's right. that's the mark of good acting, right mm -hmm. there. The I mean, it was so extreme. Kind of it was like, oh, you're sick, and then it immediately had like smallpox. It's like, geez. To me, the yeah. film is like watching a Rorschach test. Kind of, yeah. Well, but the the but thing with the, the thing with the baby there is that not only was it disturbing, uh, but then when you really analyze it um, and get past the initial horror of it, it's really, really quite sad um, because well, 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 cause symbolically it could just be um, you know, the horrors of being a new parent or the horrors of being a parent to a child who is deformed or has health problems or whatever. I mean, and you want to help your child and yet you're not in a great position to do anything about it. And that can be really scary, but also very, very sad. And so the baby becomes a very pitiable uh, character. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, that's just something else I noticed. Well, that ties into, like, near the end, it's kind of like, when he's like, what's, when he has that moment where he's like, what's under those bandages? And he, like, clips it open to look and finds out that it's just got, like, floating organs. It was almost like a mercy killing kind of thing. It's like, oh my god, no wonder it cries all the time. It's clearly in pain. And then when he thinks he kills it, it just transforms into something. Uh, like, it's, it's just shape, it's shape just, like, changes and everything gets freaky. And... and that thing where, like, a giant version of its head just kind of, like, shows up, like, in the flickering light, that scared the hell out of me the first time and still creeped me out, like, this time. They never actually, like, address that it's different. They're just like, oh, it's the baby, you know what I mean? They don't directly really talk that much about how it's not a normal child. And that probably shouldn't have gone home with them from the hospital. No. Well, no. and also, yeah, the, the main character also sees... The main character also sees the world differently than those around him, which, of course, is the the whole idea of the outsider and all that, which is explored in a much more artistically rich fashion than, I would say, a Tim Burton film where Tim Burton just keeps making the same movie over and over again. But, like... Putting Johnny uh, Depp in makeup, yeah. Yeah, well, but it's 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 a similar principle to what he would later do with... with um, Edward Scissorhands, except it's handled a lot more skillfully, and it came much earlier. But um, the other thing that we should talk about is the actual title of Eraserhead that 
you know, one is just, well, the idea that one is just a piece of a larger machine, that one doesn't have greater value in this very industrialized me mechanical world in that... And that you could be erased at any moment. Exactly. Well, and the fact that it corresponds with his strange hairdo, which looks like an eraser head. Um, Plus, but it just, the fact that... Uh, that what, they were what, drilling erasers out of his head, yeah, in the one yeah. scene, yeah. Um, but... Um, um, what do you think the symbolism in the in the lady the reason why the lady in the radiator had like tuberculosis or uh, something like that on her uh, face and what like the, the chipmunk cheeks or whatever isn't she called right. the dog lady in uh, one of the special features on that Criterion because that's how I first saw it was on that Criterion Blu-ray and I did watch the interviews and stuff I just don't remember because it's been like three or four years. Um, but didn't they call her like the dog faced lady and something about like pancake batter for the makeup? I thought she was the chipmunk girl, but I've heard it different ways. So, um, like, I'm just gonna like throw something out. Like, I think she was sort of just like a hallucination okay. um, from like the stress of what he was going through. So, in part, he was try uh, trying to th uh, think of something possibly sexual, and yet it was still so horrifying, maybe. Um, maybe, like, it was just kind of, I, I like how that scene, like, appears, it's like, he's been hearing funny noises from the radiator, and well, as things seem to spiral out of control, like, he just hears, he just, he suddenly sees that, and it's like, oh. And the song that he, uh, she's singing is actually from Fats, uh, Fats Waller, it's actually a song called In Heaven, so, um, um, it's definitely interesting that she is, uh, she's singing a blues song. Or a lounge song that was uh, uh, was sung by a blues man, you know. Yeah, well, I think they, uh, they used it in Twin Peaks, didn't they? Like the original Twin Peaks. I remember hearing it somewhere besides a razor head that he did. Oh, the song in heaven. Yeah, I could have sworn that was used very briefly in Twin Peaks somewhere. Like, just somebody sings it for like two or three seconds. Uh, it's possible. Well, it's a. Uh, Here's a, I would make a couple of connections here. So you got In Heaven for this, and then Blue Velvet, you got In Dreams. So in both uh, that famous scene in Blue Velvet, um, so in both instances, you've got pieces of music, like classic, classic either blues or in uh, Roy Orbison's or sort of pop rock, uh, where you have people who are aspiring to some kind of greater uh, state of existence, whether it's heaven or, or the idea of dreams. Um, and that ties into the larger theme of this lady in the radiator singing this song, and that's, you know, presumably about a better place and all that. So you have, um, in that instance, you have this idealized, quote unquote, you know, in through this nightmarish lens, this idealized uh, reality that is beckoning out, uh, you know, through the radiator, through this you know, vortex, shall we say, uh, an idealized world that's beckoning to him, wanting him to be a part of it. You well, know, his, his aspirations are guiding him there. Also, there's also some stop-motion animation in here, too. Did you notice that? Yeah, but uh, sure. but you With have... One creature? Oh, yeah. that's weird. That finger-looking thing that was going through the you, you have that going on, and then you have um, a lot of the, uh, in his other films, a lot of uh, similar characters who represent this kind of 
idealized world, uh, the happy mainstream America kind of world. Um, if you watch, like, let's say the opening of Blue Velvet, where everything is like middle America, Beaver Cleaver land in slow motion, everybody's happy, smiley. Um, you look at their smiles and they're like really creepy, like two wide smiles. And then you look at like blue, uh, if you look at Mulholland Drive, they also have these old people in the movie who smile way too wide and way too creepily. Uh, so there's, there's like the video for Black Hole Sun. Well, but like there's a attempt to reach this idealized place, and yet it's not quite right, even as it's there in front of you and as it seems to be real, and yet there's something wrong with it. So I think that that's got first set up in Eraserhead, then just got carried through in his other works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually something I'm I'm kind of curious about. So. Um, since you guys clearly know a lot about a lot more about it than me, like what's been the influence of Eraserhead like on cinema thereafter? Interesting question. I don't know. Well, well do I. That's why I want to know. <laughs> well, that's a that is an interesting question because it definitely has made an impact. Probably not so much in terms of how other people have made films as much, at least not in terms of subject matter, because that's one of the things that's so great about it is that nothing like it had really been made before or since. I mean, the closest... I understand. The, the, the closest would be... saw Eraserhead, after it had actually been seen, the audience sat in silence and then all of a sudden stood up and clapped. I can believe that easily. Yeah. Well, the, the, the closest film to it, prior to it, would have been Un Chien Andalou by uh, Louis Bunuel and uh, Salvador Dali. But even that's not all that great of a comparison. Um, but yeah, nobody's really made a film quite like it since. Uh, the one area that would be influential would certainly be in the realm of sound design. So a lot of the technical aspects, I think, for sure, were very uh, influential in terms of... And also the fact that it was so low budget, uh, and yet it achieves such a strong world. In fact, uh, Sissy Spacek yeah. kept the uh, funding of the film going, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but um, yeah, her husband's I, the guy in the beginning of the movie with the weird face yeah, with the lever. Yeah, he's the man, like the man, man in the movie with the levers. Yeah, yeah, it's like Sissy Spacek's husband. Cool. Yep. Yeah, but I, I do think that it. I do think it has been influential. Yeah. I just don't think it's been there. What he David Lynch is really one of a kind in a lot of ways, and especially because I think he's the most well-known um, surrealist filmmaker, uh, or at least a filmmaker with surrealistic influences. But um, I think that you can find the influence largely within the realms of sound design and. Uh, you know, visual effects and learning how to create a world with very little money and that kind of stuff. How to make a personal, a personal statement. In uh, well, I mean, look. Actually, uh, this is kind of a weird comparison, but look at something like Napoleon Dynamite, which is a comedy, you know, released by Paramount with MTV Films and all that stuff. So it's a bit more mainstream, and it's distribution, but it's also very, very uh, personal to uh, Jared Hess and Jerusha Hess, who made it. Um, 
it's very personal, drawn from their real life experiences, from their environment, with absurd, or with with absurd characters, with absurd situations, making some deeper comments about life and dreams and that kind of stuff. So I mean, that's kind of an odd example, but at the same time, the comparisons on a filmmaking level aren't all that uh they're not all that dissimilar when you really think about it so uh did, did everyone like the, uh, the the film all throughout oh yeah it was really it was good yes. it was just um there was so much that I apparently that I just did not catch um like but maybe maybe on the, some subs yeah i've had too much beer already um Maybe on a subconscious level, like I was catching everything that Lynch was like alluding to, and so maybe that's why it unsettled me because I've I've always kind of had those sorts of well, it thoughts definitely too. settled me at first uh, of myself. I know I tried, um, I tried watching this with my fiance, and she just was turned off by uh, by it. But uh, but <laughs> um, I can still hear that sound. Oh God, uh, David Lynch got into my brain. That's my baby. Sorry. What? That's my baby. Sorry. <laughs> He's taking a uh, dump through his nostrils, <laughs> and that's what it sounds like. But uh, in any case, um, so um, is, is there anything else that anyone wants to uh, talk about with them? Um, I had kind of some thoughts with that ending, like because I was looking at it as just this completely surreal thing. Um, like when he puts like the the thing like out of its misery, or at least that's how I interpreted it. Well, um, it looked like he actually had caught something like uh, chickenpox at first, didn't it? Um, yeah. Well, like I, I made I made that comment earlier where like everything was done to extremes. It's like, oh, I guess you are sick. Like he's. He looks at it and it's fine, and then he's like, "Oh, I guess you're sick." And then they pan over to it, and it's got like smallpox, like, um, so that that was just kind of like a sort of moment. But anyway, um, when it seems to like change into like a giant version of itself, um, when it should have just been killed, when it actually it looked like it almost became him. Yeah, so. like that was that was another cool thing that they did, where like they would just like switch heads up. Like I assume they just did that to like mess with me. With I'm, the work. I'm thinking that um, it it might have been something where where it, it maybe he might have been thinking that uh, he uh, because the child came from himself that he was ha having like this um, alternate reality of uh, facing that this uh, this child was actually a part of him. Well, that that could be one thing too, but the um, well, anyway, kind of getting back to what I was thinking about, what what the ending made me think, like when all that stuff happened, like the levers like stop and break with the man in the moon. I'm just gonna call him that. I don't know what he's really fucking called. Actually, That's what he looks like man in the planet. The man in the planet, and like the planet broke open. Like, I'm I'm really into like Lovecraftian things, and <laughs> it sort of felt a little like that. Like, my first, like, thought was, it's like, oh, shit, it's loose. Wait, what's loose? Like, what well, happened? Like, what is our universe going to be like now? Because, like, something, it looked like something had broken out. Um, and I just thought that was really cool. Although I'm probably totally wrong, but. 
evidently his head was supposedly floating in space in the beginning. So that, uh, that's that's what supposedly was happening. So he's and, like snapped into reality or out of reality? Uh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, it can be interpreted many different ways. So, but ultimately, I think it's important to note. Uh, Go ahead. Like, I think it's like one thing to note is that like before he was a filmmaker, he was a painter. Okay. And I, I feel like he was like kind of like a you know like a surrealist painter and did all like all these paintings and I think it's like sometimes like you can kind of see how like in his movies like it feels somewhat like a painting and I feel like not everything has to like necessarily like like the ending doesn't have to really like make sense as much as it's just kind of like an idea he thought was cool and threw it in there because it like resonated with him in some way, even though there's no like real way to explain exactly what's happening. I feel like it's kind of true in all of his work. It's possible. It's that just, it's just something that's there. It doesn't necessarily have to have a meaning. Yeah. I, I can understand that with a lot of the stuff that he's put out. Like I actually kind of enjoy that. And it's like, well, why is this like that? <laughs> because I know it bothers you and for no other reason. <laughs> so like, I, yeah. I really like, I really like that kind of attitude with things uh, sometimes. Well, and he's also a uh, musician as well. Um, he he's put out his own albums uh, of his own music. He's directed a lot of music videos, uh, and uh, so he he's very multifaceted and explores the film medium in such a way that I don't think people really do, and that's a that's a really admirable thing to me. Very true. He's pretty brilliant. Um, like it's very clear from watching any of his works, and I haven't even seen that much of his stuff. Um, I think, all and it's kind of, it seems like some of it's a little self-indulgent, where it's just kind of like I'm going to go off onto whatever tangent I feel like exploring this theme or this kind of imagery. We're just gonna do it and see <laughs> what happens and see what it does to people. Yeah. I could see David Lynch t uh, uh, taking anything and uh, being able to make some obscure film about it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's quite self-indulgent as much as it is just Lynch's like, Transformers. Make it happen. Well, I don't know if it's like self-indulgent as <laughs> much as it is like Transformers, where it stands right now. Okay. Like just an exploration of emotion. You know, I, like you said before, a painter. I think painting is a very emotional exercise where you don't you try not to be overly analytical with it um you just try to f really feel it out and uh i think he does that with his work and yet you can also trace a lot of very clear um you know motivations behind it well in any case i think we're gonna wrap it up here um I think we uh, talked about many different points, and uh, I, I think uh, we definitely um, can, can all agree that we all did enjoy the, the film. And I think that I think if you stuck this in front of a lot of people um, uh, to watch, um, regardless whether what um, what um, what you get from it, it's definitely an interesting experience. Ooh, I have, I do have one more thing. Um, so one of the people I showed it to, um, who I kind of wish was here today, I won't say who it was. Um, so I showed him this movie, and I was like, "All right, so what did you think?" 
And he looked at me and he was like, so the most fucked up thing I've ever seen is this clip of somebody like masturbating with a severed animal head. And this is number two in weirdness to that. <laughs> so it's like, wow, that's a high bar. <laughs> Randomness. But uh, in any case, uh, well, um, I think I'm going to end it on that note um, because I think we've covered a lot of uh, gr uh, ground, unless anyone else has anything else to say. Nope. Okay. Uh, well, um, uh, Celeste, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, uh, and uh, we'll uh, uh, the end of this started. I am Celeste. I am the co-host on a horror host TV show called Dedger's Dark Coffin Classics. If you'd like to look it up, it's vimeo.com slash ddcc or just Google Dedger's Dark Coffin Classics. And I am also the host for the Milwaukee Burlesque Troupe Glamour Junkies, which you can find on Facebook and Instagram. Cool. Um, Sam, uh, you remember we did this kind of last time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, kind of tell a little bit, bit about yourself. Why don't you tell a little bit about your recent accomplishments? And uh, 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 yeah, I uh, just uh, graduated from film school a few months ago in May, and uh, I just finished my first feature uh, just over the summer. Uh, I finished editing it, and it's. Uh, out on Amazon for free for streaming and there's DVDs available on the Facebook page just facebook.com slash the dark side of the womb or just slash dark side of the womb know the cool alrighty um, and um, oh, yeah. there's definitely going to be more, uh, more from uh, this young man too so um, definitely cool. check, check, check it out um, Dustin, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What you do? <clears throat> well, um, so I live in Milwaukee and I go to UWM. I'm currently failing courses in programming with Python. Uh, I have been a film fan for a while. I collect uh, horror movies and have been learning a lot from their special features. So that's kind of where a lot of my analysis comes from. Um, I have an Instagram page for my collection, which I've been lazy on posting stuff on uploading to lately, but should be putting more on. So I think it's DHR Hunter, all one word. Um, so follow me on Instagram and see like all the ridiculous things I spend my money on. And it's also my birthday tomorrow. And I'm not telling you how old I am because I'm really embarrassed and ashamed. He's, four he's 14. You have your eyes. <laughs> Happy birthday, Dustin. Oh, thank you. Happy birthday. Yeah. You two-year-old. Tell Santa Claus what you want for Easter. <laughs> a new sound system. Get me a sound system. Uh, okay. Uh, Dane, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do? Right. I am Dane Kyle, a writer, director, producer out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, you can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter, just and. uh Last name is K-E-I-L. You can look for me on uh, YouTube. My channel name is The Dane Kyle. Um, and you can check out my work there. I've been so busy lately. I uh, Casting is going on for my first feature right now. 
Uh, I just completed a horror short film, which is hopefully going to be included in a anthology film. I still have yet to hear the official confirmation, but I hope that they pick me. Um, and I, if so, I can tell you more about it next in a, in the future episodes. Uh, David and I are going to be uh, working on a horror short, a different horror short film, uh, sometime in the future, uh, hopefully in the near future. And then uh, I'm recording this Saturday, recording voices for a puppet show that I've been developing for like three years. So cool. a, lot of, a lot of good stuff coming my way. Cool. Awesome. And uh, my name is David Stregi. Um, I. Uh, uh, first and foremost, I run Movies Galore Milwaukee, which is a group that talks about anything from uh, silent films to current in-development projects. Um, uh, but I also write from a somewhat horror blog of the same uh, same name, and I run Inside Movies Galore. But I'm also a small-time producer, um, and uh, one of the films that is coming up here that uh, – that, uh, will be coming out in 2018 is Wrestle Massacre with uh, Brad Twig. And uh, I, I also wanted to thank um, Sam here for uh, um, putting one of my quotes on uh, uh, on his uh, uh, latest movie. So thank you for that. Um, oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, so um, in any case, hopefully uh, everyone out there who's listening can definitely check out um, – uh, uh, Sam's n- newest film, as we interviewed him last uh, last week. Uh, dark Side it, of the Womb, go do it. Uh, check out The Dark Side of the Womb. You can uh, find his film on Kunikai. Uh, so um, it's only six bucks. Check it out. In any case, hopefully you guys have a good evening, and uh, thank you for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. That's That's pretty important. We well, need to plug that more. Oh, yes. Most Always time. brush your teeth, kids. Anyways, say goodnight, guys. Yeah, right. Good night. Night. Good night. Night. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I thank you.